you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of The Bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of The Bunker Last branding team. In this episode of The Transition, I'm joined by Navy veteran Teresa Black, founder of Bone Op Sweet, which crafts delicious, decadent chocolate bars that aren't filled with processed ingredients. That way you can enjoy something sweet, tasty, and satisfying without an ounce of guilt. Teresa is sharp. We first met at the Military Veteran Startup Conference, and since then, I've been following her on LinkedIn. She gave me a few samples at the conference of her chocolate, and let me tell y'all, they are absolutely delicious. On the show, Teresa shares the origin stories of her company, which initially started out as a gelato shop before pivoting into producing chocolate bars, and how she's managed to grow it while also being a single mother. Before you hear from Teresa and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter at least once a week, and if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Teresa, welcome to The Bunker. What's going on? Hi, thank you for having me today. I saw Teresa at the Military Veteran Startup Conference back in February. There was like four black people there. So I walked in. I was like, who is this? You know how we do, Teresa. Come on, you know, yeah. size yeah. up the room, whatever. And when I found out what you were doing and you had these really dope chocolate bars, I was like, I got to get her on the podcast. And it was cool, too, <laughs> because you were on a panel um, at the startup conference. And one of the things I talked to Tim about was just getting more word out about these kind of activations, because I just think it's such a, a great opportunity to get uh, the broader veteran community you know, in front of investors into the ecosystem. But a lot of times people just don't know. So yeah. having platforms like this is a great way to get the word out. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the problem also is just that um, a lot of the black entrepreneurs that are, that are actual veterans, like we are kind of heads down, just trying to, you know, what I mean, get by. Um, and we don't like we don't have access to what we don't have access. We just don't know about a lot of these programs um, that are, that are happening out there. And, uh, but somehow everybody else finds out. Um, so it's, it's kind of weird actually. That's why I, I say one of the questions that you asked, or uh, was that you that asked the question? That was me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why I believe in lifting as we climb, you know, and honestly that event solidified. I need to write that book, black veteran entrepreneur, because I just feel like, um, I'm just tired of going in rooms. I'm tired of going to rooms when there's like three or four of us, when there should be like 200, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it is I mean, what it the is. The other thing is, like, I mean, you were sitting there, and then the question that you asked was like about um, the, the, you asked the people that are the venture funds, right? And you asked them how many black veteran entrepreneurs they've invested into, and everybody's sitting there looking at each other and twiddling their thumbs. And it's just like everyone's talking about how much they want to help veterans, but like it feels like sometimes when you're actually in the game, like in the trenches, it's like only certain veterans are the ones that are they're trying to be helped. So um, it's just I don't know. That's why people like you and me are going to change it. You know, and now we're going to change it. We're going to build our successful ventures and we're going to invest in one another. Right. Um, and yeah. what Teresa is getting at is I brought up a comment. I'm like, I love the promotion of veteran entrepreneurship and veterans and venture capital and stuff, et cetera. But when I look around and see people that don't reflect the breadth and scope of the broader military. Right. I can't help but say something. It's like in my I don't know. It's just where I come from. And so I've kind of reached the point in my life to where I I can't tell other people what to do with their money. You know, obviously, but what I can do is invest in people myself. And one of the ways I do it currently is through content like this, you know, getting the word out, sharing knowledge and resources, and then also helping entrepreneurs as much as I can, you know, um, through Ironbound Media and uh, Ironbound Box and everything else through what I call radical generosity. So my time is worth $10,000 a minute. 
So, you know, I might not be able to cut you a check, but I can give you, you know, 30, you know what I mean, two hours sometimes, as long as I'm generating a margin to allow me to do so. But uh, I think that's a, you know, that's a great conversation. That's a great follow-on conversation. And I am actually going to be bringing on, you know, um, some uh, venture capitalists of color to kind of talk through, you know, what can we do as founders to make ourselves more, um, how do I say this, more shiny. You know what I mean? To actually receive uh, a capital. So me and you just kind of jumped in and started chopping up. Teresa, I would love for you to first just kind of introduce yourself to everyone that's listening. Yep. So I'm um, Teresa Black. I uh, was active duty uh, service warfare officer um, for about five years. Uh, then I left active duty to go to law school. As soon as I graduated, I got uh, mobilized um, maybe about six months afterwards. And uh, then I was gone for a little over a year. Um at that time that I left, it was about a week before my daughter's second birthday. Uh, and I'm a single mom, so she went and stayed with my cousin. And obviously couldn't understand why I was gone. Uh, and I remember like maybe the third day I was gone, she says to me, uh, Mommy, when can I come see you at your house? Um, so she legitimately thought that I dropped her off somewhere and then moved. Um, and it was just like, it was heartbreaking. And it was something that she just never got over. And, and it was something that I every single day cried about every single day in, in and out. And I knew almost immediately upon leaving that I couldn't do it again. Uh, and so I started my company um, as a promise to her that I would never deploy away from her again. Uh, and I chose, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, you finish. Uh, I chose, um, I chose like better for you desserts because before I left, um, I never gave my daughter any type of sweets or anything like that. And then while I was gone, my family's just like, oh, poor baby, you've been deprived. Uh, and so they started giving her all types of sweets and sugars and candies and all the trash, right? So um, I came back home and was like, all right, well, I can't take away the sweets that she loves so much now, but I can give her something else to replace the ones that she's eating um, with them. And so that's why I started making these better for you desserts. I think one of all our, a lot of our listeners hear this, right? You know, in the military, you know, there's a lot of safety and security, right? You got the benefits, you know, steady paycheck and stuff, et cetera. And then when they transition out, a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to go into corporate America. I need to get a job, et cetera. You're like, I'm going to start a company. And ain't a lot of security in that. So how did you think through that process? Um, honestly, I am a saver. Um, I, I went in as an officer. I paid off all my college debt um, with the commissioning loan because um, it's a lower interest rate. Uh, I, so I paid off all my college loans that were above the interest rate that was, that was for the commissioning loan. So paid all that off. And then by the time I went to my second command, I had all my college loans paid off. Um, and each time I got promoted, I only I only kept living off of an ensign salary. And all the money that I made after that went straight to my savings account. Um, and I just saved. And then I got stationed in Japan, where you're making a ton of money too. Just saved it all. Um, and so by the time I went to law school, I had I just all my money saved up. I had no no debt. Um, and so it was. I don't know. Uh, so when I got when I went to Djibouti, it's a combat zone. So you're you're out there for a year with a uh, with no with no taxes. So once again, just saving up. And so it wasn't like so I'm a single mom, so I didn't have another person whose salary could to save me if something happened. But I am still in the reserves, and I still had all that money in my bank account. So it was just like, all right, I'm taking a risk. Yes, but I still have health insurance for my daughter because I was still in the reserves, and you know what I mean. I still have my money in the bank, so I was good. Love it. I did the opposite. I bought a 2011 Dodge Challenger when I came back from Afghanistan. <laughs> Got my little bootmobile. I still have it, y'all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things you and I were talking about before is, you know, just some kind of vulnerability. And so as we start to, um, you know, learn more about your story, I would love for you to take off all your armor and let us know something you're struggling with, either personally or professionally, as a veteran entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I think the first struggle that I had was coming out and not knowing anybody in anything. Like, I don't know anybody in food. I didn't know anything about food. Um, I don't know any, anyone that's an entrepreneur. Like, I, I didn't, I had, I literally came from nothing and said, I'm going to do this because I can spend more time with my daughter. Um, and, but like, I, I did a lot of research, obviously, before I started, but it wasn't like, I still didn't realize that you have to know people in the, in the game before you can really get into it. Um, and so I obviously learned. Um, but, uh, it, it was, uh, that was a huge struggle for me. And then also coming out of there and just like, like I said, I didn't know any entrepreneurs. So I don't know. It's like trying, when you're going as a solo entrepreneur, you don't have that person next to you. That's your partner saying like, we can keep doing this. We can, we can make it. You're just, it's all up here. Uh, and so it was, it was hard doing it by yourself. 
Um, and then also I didn't live, I like, I bought my house while I was on deployment. Um, so I, I didn't live any, near anyone in my family. I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone. Um, I just bought my house because it was the best school that I could afford for my daughter. Uh, and so it was just like, um, I'm living in, in the wilderness with nobody. You know what I mean? Uh, so, I mean, that struggle was real. I mean, it's completely alone and doing your own, like making your own business. And, uh, it was tough. Um, and then starting your business, you're a single person and you don't have time to meet anybody. And it's just, I don't know if, if you could name the thing, the problem, I had it. <laughs> what she's saying is it's real out here. Y'all yeah. I try to tell people, um, and I'm actually going to write more about this. I think because we've sold this kind of like hero journey of entrepreneurship as it's like the, the, uh, identity to strive for, but the reality, like the dream is free and the hustle sold separately. And it's yeah. a lot of sleepless nights. It's a lot of anxiety. It's all this other stuff that comes with it that people don't really realize until they're in the arena. And yeah. but like you currently, you know, as a founder who successfully launched their business, what about like right now? What's the thing that you're struggling with right now? Yeah, I mean, right now. So um, we are my biggest problem before before right now was that um, our orders were so large that we I couldn't I was fulfilling them, but they were all coming out late because we just had so many orders and we were making them all by hand, and I just couldn't keep up. Uh, and so I was trying to raise money so that I could fund a um, a, a co manufacturer to make my chocolate for me, just one round. Um, uh, but uh, I I raised all that I raised the money for it, uh, and then my co manufacturer just didn't deliver. Uh, so my chocolate, uh, it tasted, um, and these are not my words. They, these are the words of the customers, people that have tried it, but it tasted amazing. Um, people love the way that it tastes. And the co-manufacturer came in and, and made it for us and they made 50,000 bars. Um, and they can't make one of our best flavors. So one of our top selling flavors are not able to make. Um, and then two, like the chocolate just doesn't taste the same. Um, people try it, I've had everybody try it that had it before. And they said, yeah, if I hadn't had your chocolate before, I would say this tastes amazing. But like I had your chocolate before. And so it's just like, it doesn't taste exactly the same. Like it's still good. It's just like, it's not where it was before. Uh, and so to hear that from me, especially because like, you know what I mean? I was working day in, day out, all day long, like constantly just grind on, my gr on the grind, creating this recipe just for someone else to make it and not care about it as much as I did and like kind of mess it up. Um, but the other thing is like, I paid them back in May and they told me that I had my chocolate by June, but it's almost September now and I still don't have it. Um, and so it's just like, I don't even know what to say. Honestly, it's just like my hands are locked and I can't do anything. My entire business is, is running on, on like, is dependent upon this individual and they know that. And there's nothing I can do to get my stuff back. All right. This, so Teresa shared this with me before we went live. And I wanted her to talk about on the show because I think this is a lesson learned for a lot of our listeners. And I think we can talk through this, right? There is this thing in business. I call it the cost of doing business, right? And I'm going to equate it in a story, okay? So when my first times I fought for the national championship, Teresa, right? Like, you know, you're in the ring. Stuff ain't going 100% all the time. You know what I mean? I got dropped in the first round. Like, boom. You know, made it all the way to the finals my sophomore year. I got dropped in the first round, right? And that's when it hit me. Mike, you didn't really think it was going to be this easy, did you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so I equate that, too, with, like, business of, like, you know, when you're competing at that level, right, like, nothing is going to be perfect, right? You're going to get hit below the belt. The ref isn't going to call stuff, all this other stuff. But, like, yo, this is the national championship, right? <laughs> nothing is getting given to you. Yeah. It's the same thing in business, and I think a lot of times we think everything is going to go right. You know, the stars are going to align. But this is what it is. This is what it means to be an entrepreneur. And so sometimes we got to take that L, right? And you got to learn the lessons the hard way. And that's just the cost of doing business. And it happens all the time with co-founders, bad financials, you know, not paying attention to market trends and stuff. But you learn from it and you grow, Okay. But for you, you're still in a fight. And so let's let's do this kind of live. Let's think through, you know, OK, how can we get ahead of this? Because one of the things I'm learning in business is as best you can, you got to get on offense. Yeah. Right. And I just listened to a podcast about a company called Jibby Coffee. It's like a CBD coffee. And they had the same thing kind of happen where they paid this co-manufacturer to make this coffee and it froze and it was trash. 
and they just had to eat the cost. So, but they got ahead of it and they let their followers know, the people that pre-ordered. So I'm curious to know, like, what can we do to get you on the offense with this situation? Well, so honestly, um, as soon as one of my customers, so they haven't given me my chocolate yet, but they have been shipping it out um, to like the big grocery stores. Um, so my individual customers, we still like we, <laughs> uh, we we're not. I don't have the chocolate yet, but um, so people in grocery stores have have gotten it. They're they're tasting it and they're they're getting back to me, and people are telling me it's like, hey, it's still good. It just doesn't taste like your old stuff. And as soon as I heard that the first time, um, as I told you before, I got on here, I, I just moved. Um, so I'm once again starting from scratch at zero uh, in another place. Um, but the reason I, I really like this area is because it's growing and it's not it's not to the point where it's just like nothing's affordable. Um, so as soon as I heard this back from my customer, I immediately started looking for a place to rent um, so that we can go back to starting to make the chocolate again. Um, and um, what, I mean, honestly, right now I'm debating between either using the um, the chocolate that he made as uh, just making a, a, um, a hot chocolate line, but like a fresh hot chocolate line. So most hot chocolate is made out of the powder. It's made out of cocoa powder, sugar, and and, and uh, dry milk. Um, but if you make, if you use my chocolate to make hot chocolate, it's made out of fresh chocolate and milk. And what is, it's your milk of choice. So if you want to put your oat milk in it, or you want to use your cow's milk in it, you just put these pieces of bar, um, these broken up, like these shaved pieces of chocolate into your milk heat it up and then you have hot chocolate, but it's fresh. Um, it tastes much better than regular, like traditional hot chocolate. Um, so traditional, we're still debating doing that. Um, um, but ultimately I did end up getting like this new space. I'm going to, I'm going to have, we're going to start making the chocolate again here. I'm going to put in for a, a SBA loan. I'm sorry. My daughter is You're good. We, listen, this is, this is a pre post COVID like, Listen, kids are around. We, you know, we we live real lives, so don't apologize for that ever. Okay, um, but yeah, we're getting our own space. We're gonna we're gonna put an SBA loan so we can get the equipment, like the higher the, the larger pieces of equipment, so we can make um, higher quantities of chocolate without struggling like we were before. Um, and then the equipment takes six months to be produced. So in those six months, we're just going to um, sell that chocolate that this guy just made for us, um, and then. Uh, because you have to realize that we're get, we just got into Whole Foods, we just got into Walmart, we just got into so we just started all these huge stores, right? So our customers are just starting to come on, like our larger, like you know what I mean, the larger uh, people. So they're gonna taste this chocolate and they're gonna be like, oh, this tastes good. But then when they get our next, like our version of it, right? They're gonna be like, holy crap, this tastes amazing. And so like they'll be customers for life. Uh, I mean, so ultimately the idea is just like it's gonna take us six months to transition into this next phase. Uh, but then we'll be, we'll be good. Um, we'll have our own manufacturing facility and we won't have to rely on anybody else to, to, like, we won't have to risk anybody else messing us, messing up our chocolate. Um, and we also won't need that huge chunk of money from investors because we'll be making it like as it's ordered. What's funny is, um, uh, I'll touch on my other podcast, Dog Whistle Brand. I've been having a lot of D to C content on there. And I had uh, James Richardson who wrote a book called Dr. James Richardson, who wrote a book called Revamping. Ramping your brand. He talks about mm -hmm. the CPG growth curve. Yeah. And because I follow him on social, a lot of stuff is starting to pop up on my feed. And I saw a founder say that if there was one thing he would change in his business, it would have been buying his own manufacturing facility or something. Because yeah. the pain of the co, just what you talked about. And so it seems like you learned a lesson. Now you're like, look, if I got to go raise more or whatever to bring this to life, but it's like an essential part of successful cpg brands it's seeming like like I, I get it at the certain point of like lean startup you know what i mean like build measure learn but when you're off in the races and you've got a brand that people expect a certain you know quality from yeah. you know it's a whole different situation now and so i appreciate you sharing that lesson particularly for our other um cpg founders out there so one thing I have to do, I got to acknowledge Bunker Labs, a national network of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs that are dedicated to helping our ecosystem grow and start their own businesses. Teresa, how did you get connected with Bunker Labs? Because I know initially you were like, I didn't know anybody out there that was kind of doing what I'm trying to do. I didn't have any entrepreneurs to hang out with. You know, it's funny, actually. I found Bunker Labs um, right, I think, a week before I came back from deployment. Um, and I went through, at that point, I already had my business plan together. I had already registered my business. Like I had already done everything, like all the like initial steps that you needed to do. Um, and I don't remember how I found it, honestly. 
somebody told me though, somebody told me while I was on deployment, um, they told me to check out Bunker Labs and I went through their course. Um, it was the online course that you can do. Yeah, um, and so I did. Mm -hmm. And so I went through all of that um, right before I came back home. Um, and, but you know what? I didn't connect with any, I didn't connect with any veterans through that program. Um, I think the first veteran group that I started was when I got back home, there was a guy that I met on deployment and he told me his, his, uh, father-in-law lived right around the corner from where I was moving to. Um, and his father-in-law is an entrepreneur. And so he introduced me and that guy. And then that guy took me to, um, so I lived in Loudoun County, um, which is like, they have a very big, um, I can't remember what it's called, um, but it's the thing. ESO, that Veteran service organizations. Kind no, it of wasn't like veterans. It was about, it was just about entrepreneurs. So it's just, a, it has a big, it has a big community of entrepreneurs there, but there's a program specifically for entrepreneurs in, it's mostly in most counties. I can't remember what it's called though. Um, but anyway, he took me to one of those meetings. Um, and so I met a handful more of entrepreneurs. They used to have weekly meetings before COVID, uh, weekly brunches. Um and so I went to a couple of those, but then COVID happened like right after. And um, also the, my experience with that organization was pretty much that they just tried to use me. So they just tried to find ways that they can get free gelato. Um, and so it was just like, all right, well, I can't afford to do this. <laughs> so I didn't really go back. But um, but yeah, Bunker Labs, honestly, I, I really benefited from the program that I used when I when I did the online program. How do you feel like you have a community now? Whether bunker or otherwise, do you feel like you have entrepreneurial communities to lean on? Um, yes. So if I ever have any questions, um, so I, I've, along the way, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs, food entrepreneurs specifically that helped me significantly. Then I've met some other um, like black entrepreneurs. Uh, I have a whole group of veteran uh, black entrepreneurs that that um, I, I've met that through uh, America, on, Veterans Grow America. Yep. Um, and so... Like we have a little Facebook chat group. And then um, I have another guy that I met through another accelerator that I did. And he was a senior veteran, a senior entrepreneur who also is a veteran, but also is a black man. And he sought me out because um, he wanted to mentor me. And so me and him chat all the time. And so um, it's just through, and honestly, one of the food entrepreneurs, actually, um, Abe, he was at the meeting that we went to, uh, Abe, Abe Carmack. Uh, he's yeah, Abe Carmack, that's the yeah. man. Yeah. He, I met him on LinkedIn and then we, we met in person, um, randomly because up through another program, a veteran program, and we, he became my mentor, uh, through that. And so he helps me every step of the way because he's also doing food and he's also doing better for you food. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah, I have, I have a, I have a group now, but it's still kind of difficult because a lot of the stuff I'm going through, they never had to, or they never did. Um, and so they have advice for me and they, they know, you know what I mean? They, they're helping me out. Um, but some of the stuff I still had to figure out on my own. Which is, I mean, all part of the all part of the uh, the path. Not anymore. You're in my <laughs> circle now. I'm about to start tagging you on LinkedIn, right? I'm gonna start throwing your stuff your way. Um, Thank you. Yeah, man. This is what it's about. This is another reason why we do these platforms to bring the community together. You don't gotta go at it alone. The y'all out there too listening. Listen, we're in this together, man. Um, it's hard. It's a hard journey, but we can figure it out, right? I believe that you know the internet now is about collaboration. Right. Um, I really believe, you know, lifting as we climb. It's like if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's these platforms, everything we're doing at Bunker. So I appreciate you being open eyes and sharing about that kind of stuff, because, again, I, th I feel like we got to do a better job of, um, I don't know, being that beacon, you know, getting the word out um, yeah. as best we can, because I don't think entrepreneurs should be out there grinding by themselves, veteran entrepreneurs. Uh, without realizing that, like, hey, there's a community out here um, to support you. Now, you told on yourself a little bit, though. You start talking about gelato, and our listeners are like, what the heck? Gelato? I thought you sold chocolate bars. So take us back, right? Take us yeah. back to the found, the initial founding of your company. Because, okay, you're in the Navy, got it, got your daughter, you're transitioning out. But I was under the impression that you actually started with, like, a ice cream gelato company yeah. first. Mm-hmm. So... When I first got out, I started uh, Amore Congelato, um, and no one could spell it, no one could pronounce it, nobody knew what it meant. It, it means frozen love, um, but that's why I picked the name. But yeah, I started off making date sweet and gelato, uh, and the gelato honestly tasted amazing. And, and I love the gelato the most because I can put in my, I, I love to bake, um, so I put in all of the stuff I used to love to bake. So I, look, make, I made peach cobbler gelato, I made uh, banana pudding gelato, you know what I mean? I put some soul into it. 
uh, and people loved it. And um, I opened up a shop December 2019. Um, and then obviously COVID happened. We actually made it through the year really well. Um, it's just that we only had a temporary lease and the landlord kicked us out um, because they found someone that be a permanent tenant, um, which means that we had to shift our, our business model to a um, completely e-commerce, which was not good for gelato. It cost $100 to ship gelato and you have to ship it overnight. Um, so just the shipping alone was $100. Then you had to buy the dry ice. Then you had to buy the specialized containers um, for the dry ice. And it was just it's too much money because at that time, um, UPS and FedEx were not guaranteeing their delivery times. Um, so the chocolate was, I mean, the ice cream was getting delivered two days late and it would be completely melted. And then I had to pay out of pocket another hundred dollars just to ship it out again. Uh, and so it was just like, it wasn't sustainable. And so, um, I was already making the chocolate for the gelato because chocolate also does not have any sugar and it's sweetened with dates. Uh, and so it was just like, I wonder if these bars would sell by themselves. And so we did it at, we tested it at a grocery store. Uh, so we put the we put the chocolate into the grocery store in my little makeshift packaging that I made. Like you know, what I mean, I've I've made the stickers, everything. It was outselling Hue Chocolate, which was one of the number one better for you chocolate bars on the market. It still is. Um, it was outselling them without any marketing, without nothing. And so it was just like, all right, I have something here. And shipping that out only cost eight dollars. So hundred dollars, eight dollars, and like the bars are completely organic. They're non-GMO. They're fair trade. They're dairy free. You know what I mean? Zero added sugar, like only three to five ingredients. It was just like, it was a no brainer. Uh, and so we pivoted. Um, also though, my daughter wasn't really able to have chocolate before because she's allergic to soy um, and all chocolate has soy lecithin. And so um, she wasn't able, really able to eat it. She could eat it, but she would break out. Um, and so now she has a chocolate bar that doesn't have any sugar and also doesn't have any soy uh, that she can eat. And I'm happy with her eating. So you yeah. said we a lot, right? So oh, like take when you say we within like your company, like how many was on your team? Is it just like you behind the computer or is it like <laughs> you, you got a co-founder, you got a team, you know? No, I, I use the royal we. So <laughs> I mean me also. and the company. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, um, I have I have two employees that were helping me make the chocolate. Um, but now that we transition out of making the chocolate, I, I transition them into like they go out and do sampling, um, they do the shipping and stuff like that. So uh it still is, I guess it's still a we. Cause now they're helping me on this side of things, but yeah, it's, it's, so it's three of us, uh, grinding it out. I remember um, when I was a, we, I was like, we at Ironbound media, no damn well it's me and my <laughs> laptop and my microphone. But yeah, yeah. I say we now there's, there's like five of us. So I can, <laughs> I can legitimately, um, say we now when you came to fun in the brick and mortar and I run a boxing gym here in Newark, right? Uh -huh. I know brick and mortar is hard, right? How did you get the initial, I'm gonna say how, right? The initial capital, to yeah. fund the brick and mortar. You just covered it yourself. Did you get a loan? You know, how did you bring that to fruition? So when we first launched, actually, we were selling um, at farmer's markets. Um, and when you sell at farmer's markets, you can make the product in your house. So I got my, my house certified as a commercial uh, kitchen by the state. And then um, I was I had my gelato machine, a commercial gelato machine. I had uh, three phase electricity put into my house. And then I was making the gelato right there. Uh, in the in the kitchen, and so I mean, it did really really well at farmers markets. Um, and so from the farmers market sales, that's what funded the opening of the the brick and mortar. All right, I want to break this down because it's an important lesson to learn. I think for D 2 C brands in general, right, building some kind of audience so that way when you do open that shop is a great strategy. And I'm willing to bet because like you were driving revenue, you start to get an audience around the gelato that when you opened the shop, right, it was still hard, but you at least had an audience already that liked your product, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, it's that, but also, um, so it, it was difficult because you had, when I opened up the shop, right down the, like literally a block away was a grocery store. Um, and it was a, a pretty good, like a pretty high-end grocery store, not not like a, I mean, not Aldi's or whatever. It was a, it was a pretty high, it was a Harris Teeter. So it's a very high-end grocery store. Um, you can go in there and get pretty high-end groceries. My gelato at the time, one pint cost $14. Um, and the grocery store had pints for $3. Uh, so people had to walk past, like they had to walk past the grocery store to come to my shop, right? And so it was really like, yeah, you have to have, people had to already know that our chocolate was bomb to be like, all right, I'm going to spend $14 on this when I can buy it for $3 over here at the store, right? 
And so the the reviews that we had, the customers that like had testimonials about our product, like people could go on, like if you Google, even still, even now, we don't have, I don't even make gelato. I haven't made gelato for over a year. If you would say best gelato in Chantilly, our shop will still pop up. Like we still pop up because people loved our gelato that much. Um, and as I said, I didn't stop making the gelato because people weren't buying it. I stopped making it because it wasn't economical for me to sell because it was making me lose money for the shipping, the shipping issue. Um, but people loved the product. Like they loved it. It was just like, it, it cost too much money. Even when you had the brick and mortar, was cash flow an issue? How did you um, deal with cash flow? The only time that cash flow was like any type of, the only time it became a problem, right, was right when COVID happened and everything shut down um, because my employees all quit and um, it was just like nobody was, no one was outside. Um, I shut down for, um, I think, a month or I, I shut down for two weeks to do a quarantine to make sure I didn't have anything. And then I went back into the into the kitchen. And so what I had to do immediately was just start offering delivery, like home delivery. Um, and so all the customers were that were buying it at the farmer's market now started ordering it online so I could just deliver it to them. But that then meant like I had to go into the shop. I had to make all the gelato. I had to leave the shop. I had to pack it all up in the, in the evenings and deliver the chocolate and then come home in the morning and then start all over. Like, you know what I mean? Come, start, go home late at night and then start all over again the next day. Um, and so it was it was a lot. Um, but it wasn't more, I mean, it was better than what I had when I first started, but I mean, it was still, it was still a lot. And so cash flow, that was the only time the cash flow became kind of a problem, but the reality was that we were never at risk of running out. The reason I bring that up is because, you know, as an agency owner, I try to keep my overhead as low as possible, mm -hmm. but I end up still having team members, right? So look at that cash flow expenses yeah. and everything else. And then I started thinking about brick and mortar, right? I'm like, you got a brick and mortar, you got to pay rent, you got all this equipment, you got employees, you got to take care of all of that. And then you can compensate yourself. But it sounds like you said you guys were driving pretty good revenue. Uh, I was never I was never paying myself. That was actually that was the thing. I was never actually uh -huh. paying myself. I, I was uh I had already set out that I'm not gonna pay myself for the first year of the business. Um and so I was gonna live off of my savings for the first year. Um and then supplement it obviously with the reserve pay. Um and so that's what I was doing. And then when COVID hit, that kinda like put a wrench in everything because then it was just like, all right, well now I have to because my mindset was always, all right, anything that we make, we save. And that's how, that's why it wasn't a problem getting the money to like to, to start the brick and mortar, all that stuff, because I, everything that I made, I just put it straight into the, the bank account. Um, and then, yeah, I wasn't paying myself yet. Uh, and so then as the summer hit, that, that was right when like um, um, George Floyd was killed, people started protesting, marching, whatever. Every, everyone wanted to support black business at that time. So then we blew up even more uh, because not only are we the only black owned ice cream company in that area, we're one of the only, like, we're like the, the, one of the only black owned gelato companies in the country. So it was just like, people were just like, how can I support? Um, and then also, obviously, once you taste it, it's just like, how can I support myself now? Like, you know what I mean? How can I support my stomach? Because now I want this all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. The reason I think the salary thing is important, even if you just pay yourself a little bit, is because, mm -hmm. you know, one thing that we, and you hear people say this, like, you got to bake your business um, operate without you, right? Yeah. So even you got to kind of like set conditions as if, and it sets different revenue goals, right? Yeah. I remember I was nervous when I, like I was taking draws, then I finally put myself on salary, which meant I had to be able to pay myself, but it's just, you just level up, you know what I mean? And sometimes you just got to build the business as if, and it's going to force you to act as if instead of just like, oh, I'm not going to pay myself a salary, but it's really kind of affecting your real kind of profits. Yep. It's really, so, it's really affecting how you're, you're building your business. Mm -hmm. I, I started paying myself a salary last year. Um, and I was just like, I mean, actually I, that's not true. I started, I started that year in 2020. Um, but when the shop, when the people that owned the shop told me that they were going to give my lease to someone else that were permanent, that was going to be permanent that I stopped immediately because I was just like, all right, well now I'm going to have to try to figure out how I'm going to do this next couple of steps. Um, so I stopped paying myself again. Um, and then I start once I figured out, once I pivoted the chocolate, I started paying myself again because we started having the money flow coming, like flowing in. Um, but I have had such a difficulty raising money that um, I'm still afraid to pay myself anything more than exactly what I need. So right now I'm paying myself exactly what I need to not withdraw anything from my save, my checking account. And I think I have maybe $300 on top of that just so I can start putting money back in the savings again. Um, but $300 a month isn't really going to make it grow as fast as it was before. But still, it's it's at least I'm not going negative anymore. Um, but I mean, 
Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's just like, but CPG is a cash intensive business. And as you grow, you need more cash. And so if you can't raise that cash, you die. Even if you have a good product that people are buying, it will kill you. Uh, and so that's why I'm trying to put as much back in as I can. And once we get to the point where like, there's going to be a point where it won't be an issue anymore because it'll just be self-sustaining. Um, yeah. But we're not, we're not at that point yet. Well, that's why I was asking too, because I know I'm like, man, I, I think CVG is hard because you got to sell a lot of product. You got to carry a lot of inventory, you know, you, I mean, and that's just, that's without all the brick and mortar and all the co-packing. I mean, that's just like the basic stuff. So I'm learning you know, myself about the challenges that CPG founders uh, face, yet y'all still keep jumping in the deep end. Yeah. Y'all are like, well, let's I, go. I think the biggest problem with CPG founders is is that everybody is telling us, and it's, it makes sense, right? The lean startup, you want to put as little money in as upfront as you can so that you can start making, like, you can, until you grow. But the problem is that when you don't have your own equipment to make your own product and you have to rely on other people to make it for you, then you have to buy in huge quantities. Then you have large a lot of inventory on hand. And when you do taxes, Inventory counts as cash. Uh, so while you haven't gotten paid for that inventory, you have to now pay taxes on it, which and you don't have the money. Uh, and so it, you, you have to raise money in order to keep going. And as you grow, you have to keep raising more and more money. And so it gets to the point that's just like, where's my break even point? And that number, that, that spot keeps going higher and higher because in order to grow, you need more cash because you need to buy more inventory because you need to pay a co manual. And it's just, just on and on and on. If you got your own equipment up front, that whole thing would be gone. But the problem would be that you have that inventory. So if you don't have the people, if you don't have the demand, but you have the invent, but you have the equipment that you have to pay off now, it's just like, then you go out of business because you don't have demand. So it gets to a point where you have to find a spot where it makes sense. And for us, that spot's right now. Like um, we have, we do have the demand, we have the product and we know that we can sell it. Even if we're not in grocery stores, we can sell it on our own. And so Getting the equipment, I know that I can pay off that SBA loan and our equipment doesn't cost that much money. Um, and so it's one of those things. It's just like we're just in a unique situation because like if we were making something like biscuits, we wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and so even if we were making gelato, we wouldn't be able to do it. But chocolate, the equipment is not the equipment cost is not that high. Uh, and so it just comes to a point where it's just like you are completely reliant on investors as a CPG brand, period, um, unless you have the ability to take it into your own hands. And that's what we're doing. And and every single investor that you talk to tells you, don't do that. Don't put money into equipment because they want you to rely on them. Um, and it's just, you got, I got to the point where it's just like, all right, I hear you. I can't do this anymore. I was under the impression that there's a hunger for CPG brands amongst the investing space, right? This is what we say this. But you're saying, not necessarily. And I, I, I mean, I also hate to speculate, but I also think it has something to do with, you know, founders of color, you know, receive less than 1% of venture capital, let alone female founders, right? Um, and so you're a founder of color and you're a female, right? But you also yes. are a freaking service warfare officer with a law degree from Georgetown. I want to know the skin, <laughs> say, say again? George Washington. George Washington, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us the reality of what it's like going to market and trying to raise capital. Um, so the, I think the biggest thing is like, especially in CPG is that if you, I don't know if you watch, um, uh, uh how I built this or of listen course. to how I built this. Um, but a lot of the CPG, like every CPG company at the CPG company tells you, oh yeah, my, I'm, I got a friends and family round. I did a friends and family round. I was able to raise this much money, this many millions of dollars. And then we launched that way. Um, I, I, the, most of the stuff starts with friends and family, my, my cousin, my mom, my uncle, my dad, my, you know what I mean? Um, and so in CPG that's expected. So most CPG, uh, investors, they expect you to have already had a friends and family round that got you to your million dollars in sales or your $2 million in sales. And they're coming on from there. And so that's where a lot of, almost 100% of this, of the venture founders in CPG start there. So if you're not at a million dollars in sales, it's going to be very, very, very difficult for you to get any, any type of funding. So I'm not there. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's almost, it's, it's darn near impossible. Um, and so it's just like, but I also don't have friends and family that can give me that type of money. Um, if you take someone like uh, Chivani, who was a freaking, uh, they call them unicorns. Uh, they were a unicorn. He got an SBA loan, bought an old factory and started making yogurt from there, right? So he did a non-traditional thing. He did not only focus on natural food stores, which is what they tell people. Like when you have clean product, they tell you first focus on the natural food stores. And then after that, go to the conventional. Um, 
he didn't do any of that stuff. He didn't follow the traditional track and he became a unicorn because of it. Uh, and so for me, looking at him as like an inspiration, especially because I went through the Chobani incubator um, for veterans, they did a veteran uh, class. It's just like, this makes sense. This model that he did makes sense. He was the highest, one of the highest grossing, uh, one of the highest grossing um, yogurt companies in the country, in the country's history. And he came out, you know what I mean? And, and so it's just like, he was competing with the the Downies and, and like, you know what I mean? The, the, not Downie, I forget what they're called. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's, that's, and that's, that's, that actually proves the point because I know Chobani's name right off the top of my head. But these guys are like, you know what I mean? They're Danon, that's what it is. They're like, they're, they're going off the, the edge because like these people took over. Uh, and so it's just like, you have to take the risk and that risk is, take, is getting the SBA loan and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to make this work. Um, but like, it is a risk and it is a fearful, like it's something to be afraid of, but it's also something that like, if you don't want to be completely dependent upon others to help you succeed, like you have to take your, 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 your destiny into your own hands. So are you in the process of getting SBA, SBA loan now? Yeah. I'm in the process of applying for SBA loans. In terms of the capital you raise for this uh, order of chocolates that are, you know, having their own situation, where did that capital come from? Uh, so I, I competed in a uh, a minority-owned uh, entrepreneur minority entrepreneur pitch uh, competition, uh, and I won first place, which was supposed to be three hundred fifty thousand dollars cash. Like uh, it was supposed to be a, a convertible note, uh, and then from that competition, I met another investor. I never actually got that money. They never gave it to me. They gave me, they sent me a contract that was, luckily I'm a lawyer, um, but they sent me a contract that was insane. Like it was, it was contradictory. It was three different contracts put into one, but they didn't make any attempt, attempt to uh, unify the language. Uh, they had it in there that any type of equipment or product that I had, it was going to be theirs as collateral. Um, like everything was theirs. I couldn't sell in bulk, which is exactly what CPG companies do. Um, it was just like they would own um, all of my equipment, all of my product that that's made, no matter if it was over the amount that I owed them or not. It was just like basically they owned everything. I couldn't take on any investors without getting their permission. They had the ability to share all like they had the ability to ask for any documents that I had, including like my recipes and all that stuff. And they had a right to have it and they could share it with anybody that they wanted. That was literally in this contract. Um, they could sell their interest in my company to anyone without my permission. Like, it was just like, people sign this. And then when I asked them to make changes, those specific changes, they were just like, if you don't want to take it as it is, we're not going to give you the money. And I was just like, okay, I guess I'm not taking it. But the, the fact is that that, it, that competition was specifically made for minority entrepreneurs. And when I said, there's no way anyone else that had legal representation signed this, they said, everyone had legal representation and everybody signed it. But the reality is that most minority-owned companies do not have the funds to get legal representation. So I'm a, almost 100% sure that they did not have it. And they were all signing this blindly because they thought that people were trying to help. Um, when in fact, they were just being sharks. Um, so, I mean, but anyway, from that competition, I met this other guy who uh, ended up investing in the company. That's great. And I'm going to talk to you offline about this organization because I yeah. need to make sure we steer the hell away from it. And I'm willing to bet that they, you intimidated them because of your legal background. I'm like, yo, don't play with Teresa. I'm calling <laughs> Teresa. I need some legal representation. I got lawyers, but you damn well, you better believe I'm about to hit you up for some things. And I think that is unfortunate because there's all these organizations that out here want to promote founders of colors and stuff. But what you're talking about is ownership, giving up your IP, giving up your decision-making ability, giving up all these things. And what's disappointing about that, I think, is that this was more of a competition yeah. and it sounds like you know we promote these comps about you know non-dilutive capital and all this other stuff but then they want to have all these different terms and this is why founders need to be aware of who they're doing business with and yeah. where they're taking money from and read those contracts get someone on your team you know there's tons of resources in the veteran community now available to us but man make sure you have somebody look at these contracts before you take some money um, and people think that like uh, it's it, it's a huge expense that they can't afford, but like that's one of the ones that you need you need to do, um, because I could have signed away my whole company. Like I would I, like literally said in the contract, I would not be able to raise money without getting their permission first. Like it was just for a convertible note, not even for like they don't even have equity. And and then also if I paid if I paid off the note before um, it converted, I would have to pay them like it was like fifteen twenty percent 
uh, of the loan, like uh, interest on the loan if I paid them off before they before I converted. And I was just like, yeah, I'm good. Um, I needed the money, but like, I'm not going to give up my company for it. When it came time to learn and how to like pitch and how to raise capital and how to do all this other stuff, where did you learn these skill sets from? Um, I'd like to, so I'm an, I was an advertising major in college, um, specifically copy. So I learned how to make the words that sell, um, <laughs> uh, when I was in, that's what I went to school for. Uh, and so, um, I mean, and then also as an attorney, you're taught, like you, you are very literally taught how to make your case. Um, and so it's just like, I guess all the training that I've gone through just education wise has put, I mean, literally trained me to become an entrepreneur. And then as a surface warfare officer, I remember when I first started, you're on the bridge, you're giving orders to people like, you need to go left. Like, you know what I mean? You need to turn the rudder this direction. And like, it, it has to be obeyed, right? You have to have a demanding voice. And at, at the beginning, I didn't have that. I was always quiet. I was always just like, left 30, 15 degree, like, you know, left standard rudder. And they'd be like, we can't hear you, speak up. Like, not not the, not the person who was giving orders to, but like my commanding officer was just like, use your big girl voice. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that every stage of my life has actually prepared me to become an entrepreneur and to do well in, in, in competitions, but also just to do well, just talking about my product. You take me as someone that is very well read. Were there any books that have been just like super impactful for you along the way thus far? I'm sorry. I'm horrible with names. So I'm going to tell you this is that I don't remember the titles of all the books that I read. I spent that entire year that I was deployed reading every entrepreneur book that I could read. And I read a ton and I went online and I would say, what's the best? And then I would buy all of them. And so the only reason, honestly, I remembered any of the names was because a lot of the stuff, um, so I, I had a library card. I got, I got like two library cards right before I left and they all have audiobooks. And so you can borrow the books. And I just listened to all these books, listen to all these books, listen to all these books. Like every time I was working out, I was listening to books. Like, and I didn't watch TV for the whole year. Um, and like, I literally just devoted myself to preparing to come back home and start this business. Um, and so every, I, I read book, I was reading books every day. So honestly, I don't remember all of them, but like, as you said, uh, 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 lean startup, uh, from, uh, darn it, hundred, hundred dollar startup, um, uh, ramping your brand, uh, um, a, a couple what of about books about venture deals. Did you read venture uh, deals? I don't, I don't remember. I know it's, in, that one is definitely in my, it's in my thing, but I don't think I've read it yet. So you're um, an audible person like me. Yeah. I'd be buying, yeah. Uh, yo, I'm telling myself, y'all, I'd be the, I'd be, I buy Audible like every week. Like I probably buy like two books a week, if I'm being honest. I have my little one credit and I just keep buying them again and again. <laughs> Those $3.99, you know, buy three for $39.99. So, but I, I honestly, I use a lot of, uh, I use a lot of, um, uh, libraries. Yeah. I use a lot. Of, I use a library most of the time. If I can get in the library, I'll get it there. If I can get it, if I, if, if it's on audible, but not on the library, I'll obviously buy it from audible, but I try to do the library as much as I can, just so I'm not spending money. Um, but so like built to last, um, that's a great one. Um, the one, I can't remember the one it's, it's the guy who was, um, he was, he used to work for the CIA, I think, and he created their negotiating program. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, I forgot. I know you're talking about um, ever split the difference. Yeah, never split the difference. Um, from good to great. Um, let's see. There's actually a D to C playbook by a guy named Mike Stevenson. Uh -huh. And I got it on, it's not on Audible. I got it off of Kindle, but I actually have him coming on one of my podcasts this week. Yeah. I, so. I there's there's one on um hold on, let me let me look at this. Hold on, give me a second. I have my let me look at my Kindle too. Um there's one that really Built to, oh, you said built to scale, right, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. It's all right. I just could tell that you're very well read. And one thing I'm noticing even along this interview is despite all the hardships, you still got a smile on your face. <laughs> I can still feel the energy and excitement as you're doing this. And so I'm curious to know, like, what's your BHAG? Like, what's your why? Like, what are you working towards? You know, what does winning um, look like? My why was this Isabella. Um, I literally, so... The Navy can, they can mobilize you every five years. Um, once you do a full year of, of a mobilization, they can't mobilize you involuntarily for five years. And so I had, and, but they can, they can tag you six months before your five years is up, right? So I had four and a half years to get to the point where I needed to be in order to get out of the Navy, in order to get out of the reserve. So I needed to get my business to that point in four and a half years. Um, and so like, that's my why. My why is, is her. And it's just not just her, but like, I, I almost... 
I almost, I was almost broken by that deployment. Um, me as a person, like, and I know I cannot go through it again. Uh, and, and so it's just like, everything in me was just like, this has to work because that cannot happen. Uh, and so, I mean, that's, that's really it. And, and, and the reality of those, like, I, I enjoy it, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though things suck sometimes, even though you get to the point where you're almost burnt out and you're just like, why am I doing this? Um, I think I still, I still love the fact that I get to use my creativity. I get to think of new solutions. I get to like, it's still fun for me. Um, and sometimes it sucks, especially when it's just like, like right now where I'm just like, oh man, these 50,000 bars, like, what am I going to do about this? Like, this is out of my control kind of. And it's just like, um, I don't know. You still have to just be like, all right, well, it's out of my control. So why fret? Like, you know what I mean? Uh, and, uh, and then also I, I was, got to the point where I was working every day. I mean, not got to the point. It was that way. I was working every single day for years, um, not taking a day off. Um, and my daughter came to me one day and was just like, I think she, I said, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to, oh, no, no. I said, I said, I went to her and I said, do you want to play? And she goes with you. And it was just like, oh, I started this business so I could be with her more. And it felt like it was taking me away. And so, and it was, and, and so it was just like, now we have mommy Bella days. So Sunday is her day. She gets to pick whatever she wants to do. And we do that the whole day. Um, I stopped working on weekends. Like I, I can't work weekends anymore. Those are her, that's her time. Um, or Sunday is her day specifically. Saturday is obviously her day as well, but I, I get, I can do stuff that I was not doing before. Like, like just life, like cleaning the house, doing laundry, like washing dishes, like stuff that I was doing obviously, but like, it was just like one o'clock in the morning, counting to keep your eye open and like loading the dishwasher. Like, you know what I mean? It was just, I, I'm no longer drained. Um, I'm not, I'm no longer on E at every single point of every single day um, and still giving. I don't work after certain times of the day because it's just like, not that there's not more work to do, but I can't do it anymore. Like it wasn't healthy and it wasn't making me think my best. It wasn't making my brain work its best. And you just get to a point where you have to understand, like you have to take care of you because nobody else is going to. Have to. I've been working on sharing that, more insights into that, you know, on the newsletter and on this podcast as well, because it's like, it's something you got to learn the hard way, actually, yeah. unfortunately. But I think it's that counter call. It's it's counter to the kind of hustle porn mentality out there of working 16 hours a day and, you know, scorching the earth along the way. It's like, nah, man, go work out. Take a nap. You know, don't worry. Yeah. Your problems will be there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's just and our businesses can turn into an ugly baby, like yeah. super undisciplined. It's killing us. It goes to sleep when it wants to. We, you know, eats all day versus us setting those kind of left and right lateral limits on the business and on our personal time. And it's something that's got to be, you know, if you don't know any better, right, then that's what you'll do. But that's why I encourage people, man, you got to get an operating system. You got to start to actually build out the business to operate independently of you because it will force you to think through those things. But I also think there's something to be said about being intentional about the kind of life you want to live as an entrepreneur, um, as an individual, just in general, and getting stuff down on paper. So, man, kudos to you for sharing all that. Now, as we close out, I got a couple questions for you left. Number one, what advice would you like to leave our listeners with as they continue on their own entrepreneurial journey? And number two, as a community of veteran and military spouses all across the country, all across the world, how can we support you? Yeah. Um, so... Um, I'm a single mom. I am a black woman. I am a everything that you could say is uh, uh, makes things difficult. I am that. Uh, well, sorry, I'm, I'm not LGBT community, but um, I, I, I feel that when I had my daughter, or when I became pregnant with my daughter, everybody told me that my life was, I mean, okay, what are you gonna do now? Like, what do you mean? Cause I was in law school at the time. Like, are you gonna drop out? Like, are you gonna give up on all of your dreams? Because now you can't do any of that stuff anymore. Like they told me that everyone believed that that's what the belief is. And, and I think as a, as a woman, I also felt the same way. That's what I, they didn't have to tell me that because society had already drilled it into my brain. Um, so since then I've graduated from law school, I'm licensed attorney. I can practice, but I don't um, because I've chosen to start a business. Um, and so it's just like, I'm doing all this and you can don't let anyone else tell you just because you have 
a struggle or you have a, a something that you have to get over or get past or whatever. Like you have this, you have that, you have depression, you have sadness, you have you have a, a kid when you have to take care of them yourself. Like don't let other people make your limitations for you. Um, you have to understand what you can do. And it's not, it might not be everything that I did, right? But you have to understand what you can do and don't let other people tell you what it is that you can do. Um, people, other people shouldn't be setting your limitations for you. Um, I did make it, I did do it. And not saying that just because I did that everyone else can as well, but it is saying that it is possible. Um, and it's not, it's not an impossibility like the society would let you believe. Um, so that is one thing that I would like to leave people with is, is I always like to say that because I want people to understand that nothing is easy. Um, nothing's going to be just like a, you know what I mean? Like nothing's going to be handed to you, but you can do it. Um, and, and like, I'm like, I'm from Camden, right? I'm from a poor family. It's not like, you know what I mean? I'm not, I wasn't, you know what I mean? It's just, if you work, you can get it. Let me break it down y'all. Camden, New Jersey. (laughs) I live in Newark, right? I thought Newark was rough. Camden and Newark, they're right there. You know? So I understand where you come from. We box in Camden. I remember, I think at one point they had like Camden is like one of the worst cities in the country. Yep. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I just know, point. I know this area. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and then. Um, and I, I love that message though. Yeah. I mean, it's important for people to know because I, I feel like when you're coming from places like that and when you're from families like mine and you know what I mean? You have situations like mine, like mine was, it's just like you start to get out on yourself and you start to tell yourself what everyone else is saying. Like you start to repeat it in your head. Um, but you have to understand that like, that's not, they're not you, that person that, that did that, they had to do that they whatever, that's not you. And it doesn't have to be. Um, but that's something that you have to overcome in your head because I had to overcome it too. Um, but, but yeah, anyway, uh, sorry. Um, how can people help me? Yeah. I mean, so our products are sold. So I guess it depends on where you live. Uh, but our products are sold at mom's organic. They'll be at whole foods in January. They're at Walmart's, um, from New York up. Uh, they're at, uh, so Moms Organics are in Philly, they're in Jersey, they're in New York, we're at Fairway Market, um, we're in Texas at uh, HEB Central Market, um, we just launched in Utah at Harmon's, um, we are in um, Dawson's Market, Roots Market, all up and down the East Coast, so, and, and Texas and Utah, so, and on Amazon. Uh, so, I mean, if you go on to our website at www.bonapisuite.com, um, that's uh, B-O-N-A- P-P-E-S-W-E-E-T.com. You can order our chocolate right from there and we can ship it directly to you. Um, or you can go into one of those stores I just named and pick it up. Teresa, I appreciate you. Keep striving. I'll be able Thank to put you. the link to your website in our show notes. I'm excited to follow your journey. Again, I'm so glad I went out to the Military Veteran Startup Conference because that's the power of communities coming together in person. You start to connect with people. Um, and again, man, it's, it's, you're very inspiring and this ain't gonna be the only time we talk. Cause I want to chop with you offline about a lot of stuff, but I'll be sure to, um, again, include a link in our show notes. Make sure y'all go over there, show her some love, tag her on social media, reach out to her. Um, we got to help uplifting these badass uh, veteran owned brands in our ecosystem. So I almost forgot. Um, there's a company, there's an organization called included, um, and it's for BIPOC. So minority owned business, uh, CEOs who have uh, food companies that are natural food companies. And so it's only for us. And basically it's a community, of, it's a support group. So if you ever need advice, if you ever have any questions, you can go onto our Slack channel and they'll answer any questions that you have. But the most beneficial part about this program is that it can get you into Expo East, Expo West, um, and like a fancy food show. So all the big shows for natural food in the country, they can get you in for free. So these booths that cost $10,000 can be free for you. Also the harvest festival, the organic festival, all these other booths that cost about maybe 5,000, you can get in for free as well. Um, and then they also, so these going to these shows will let you get introduced to grocery store buyers. So like whole foods, um, I got into Whole Foods because of this program. I got into Fairway Market because of this program. I got into Central Market because of this program. Like almost all the grocery stores I'm in was because of this group. Um, and so it's, it'll get you, it'll get you in front of buyers and get your stuff on, on grocery store shelves. Did you do the fancy food show? I did. How was it? Um, it was, it was, it was, it was good. It was good in the sense that, um, when people came by, I got into Saks Fifth Avenue because of the fancy food show. Um, a lot of, a lot of the companies that go to fancy food are foreign, foreign companies. 
Um, so when some of the buyers are coming through, they're looking for those specific types of things. Um, and the place where we were, were situated, it wasn't like, it wasn't our product specific area. And so there was a little disconnect. And so people were having difficulty finding us and me specifically, like I found like buyers found me eventually, but they were just like, I was looking for you the whole, during the whole show and couldn't find you until just now. Um, and I, and that's because I kept looking, right? So I, I can just only imagine all the other people who could have found us, um, that weren't able to. Uh, and so it was just because we were in the, we weren't in our, our category specific areas. Um, so I think I've met a lot of buyers, but it would have been a little bit better if we had been, um, in the right spots, but I mean, it was still a good show. Yeah. Awesome. For all our listeners tuning in, make sure you subscribe to the transition newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter at least once a week. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman or at Mike.Stedman at BunkerLabs.org if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter. Until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week, everyone.